Blog Talk Radio. There's a direct relationship between having the businesses and being in prison. Go find an Asian, see how many Asians you can find in American prisons. They ain't going to be in there. But 51% of your prison will be black because you don't, blacks don't have any businesses and industries. There's a direct link. Blacks won't practice group economics. Blacks won't practice group politics. If you don't practice, you're setting yourselves up. I told that five-story building, you're setting yourself to get wiped out. Understand the nature of race, which is economics. If you, if you build the first floor, it's economic. Build your businesses and your industries. Control buildings and industry, and put that pools in your money. And hold that money. And, it's a, and practice group economics <clears throat> with it. Arab and Asian money bounces 12 or 13 times for at least. Jewish money bounces 18 times. Black folk got to learn how to practice group economics. Black Americans spend every penny they get outside their own community. Then you take the money and the wealth that you get from that first floor and go to the second floor. The second floor is politics. You then take that money on the first floor and you control your politics. Black folk must quit allowing people to tell them to go out and vote. Vote for what? Nobody's going to do anything for black folk in politics. Politics is controlled by money. Major corporations who got the money. That's what controls politics. If you have no money, you have no say-so, you have no benefits coming. So you take your money and you control and you take your money on the first floor, you buy every politician on the second floor. And any politician you can't buy, you rent or lease them to get what you need. Then once you get the second floor under control with the politician, with your money, then you go to the third floor. The third floor is then is the police department and the court system. You take your money from the first floor and your politics on the second floor and you control the court system and the police department. Then the fourth floor, you t- the fourth floor then is media. You then take the money that you generate off the first floor from business and industries <clears throat> and you go after radio stations, TV stations, newspapers, and cable systems so that you can now inform and communicate with your own people. Right now, <clears throat> black folk only control less than 35 thousandths of 1% of the media in the United States. Out of 12,000 radio stations, black folk own about something like about 75 or 80. That's all. You own no cable systems. You don't have a daily newspaper. You have nothing of importance. You don't. You got about one black TV station. And you, so you can't communicate with your people. You can't inform your people. You can't do anything. You can have Rush Limbaugh and all the rest of the guys talking about racism all day long and bad-mouthing you and O'Reilly. They can talk, call black folk all kind of names all day long. What are you going to do? You can't respond. You can't even communicate with your own people because you, you don't have an economic base. 51% of all the prisons in the United States are black people. You know, even though you only make up 12% of the population. That's no accident. It's because you don't control the economics and the politics. And they're going to go after the weakest people they can get their hands on to incarcerate them. That's the black folk. And what are you going to do in response to them when they, when they, when they over incarcerate you? You're going to go out and have a march, a demonstration. We're going to march. March for what? Who cares? Marches never change anything.
is my house is settled. Marcus Garvey marching versus Seaport City. Marcus Garvey marching versus Seaport Literacy. Live stream number 619-768-2945. We'll be back right after this. Alright, 
It's called Marcus Garvey Marching versus Seaport Literacy. Marcus Garvey Marching versus Seaport Literacy. Live stream number 619-762-2945. We're going to take a look at uh, the Black Star Line, just a little snapshot. Um, and uh, now, before, uh, and I want people's opinion on, on the Black Star Line and Mark, Marcus Garvey in relationship to the Black Star Line. Um because that venture did not last long. And a reminder to people, well, reminder to some and to some people, new information, that there were three successful um, examples of black African-Americans venturing into the shipping business on a small scale with Paul Cuffey in Colonial Times, uh, the nation of Liberia, former slaves going to Liberia by ship, and the Republic of Maryland. All right, this going back in history, three successful snapshots. Okay, so like I say, today what we want to do is take a look at uh, the Black Black Star Line, and um, Get your comments on that. Now, I titled this podcast once again, Marcus Garvey Marching versus Seaport Shipping Literacy. The original name of this podcast was Stop Marching and Start Shipping. But I wanted to put Marcus Garvey's name in there. Therefore, I switched it to Marcus Garvey Marching versus Seaport Shipping Literacy. Anyway, let's play this first audio of uh, the Black Star Line. Marcus Garvey arrived in the U.S. in 1916 and after touring much of the country, founded the New York chapter of the UNIA, the Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League. It had tremendous success, but there was also severe opposition. One of Garvey's major projects was the Black Star Line Steamship Corporation, through which people of African descent could acquire and man their own ships and gain the respect of the mercantile and commercial world. We have in the past been living on the mercies of others, he said, and have therefore suffered. We will continue to suffer if we do not take charge of our own affairs. For one year, he gave over his entire self to talking about the Black Star Line, trying to influence people to buy stock in the company. He didn't handle the money himself, but left that to the company's officers. Millions of people were attracted to the UNIA because of the shipping company. Three months after the founding of the line, the first ship was bought and renamed the Frederick Douglass after the great African-American. She was launched in New York Harbor in October 1919. Many thousands gathered to see the boat sail under its black captain. Two other ships were acquired, Shadyside and Antonio Maceo. Garvey urged his followers to develop themselves into an industrial and commercial people. As they acquired wealth, he said, most of the wrongs inflicted on them would be adjusted. But Garvey's officers plundered the funds of the shipping company. When I started the Black Star Line, he said, I had the greatest confidence in every Negro. I gave everybody a chance, but nearly everyone I placed in a responsible position fleeced the line. 
If Jesus was the president of the Black Star Line, he could not have done better because the men had the disposition to... Okay. Today's podcast, Marcus Garvey Martin versus Seaport Shipping Literacy. Last three number 619-768-2945. One of the mistakes, and you, you learn by your mistakes. Nothing wrong with mistakes. I look at mistakes as teachers. They're instructors. That's why I'm not bashing. One of them is, in course, hindsight, a gazillion years later, is 2020 vision. All right. One of the mistakes that Marcus Garvey made, in my opinion, I'm just one person, is when you start a business, matter of fact, when you start a business, when you, even your own personal household, or just you as an individual. But particularly, in, in this case, we're talking about the black, black star man. When you go into business, you know, it's, it's good to think positive. But you also have to think realistic, which is also being more positive. Sometimes it doesn't seem that way. You've got to anticipate could go wrong. Now, as you just heard in this audio, Marcus Garvey didn't handle any of the money himself. He, and one of the smart things that Garvey did do is he delegated to people that he thought or, or not even thought knew that were probably smarter than him dealing with certain responsibilities. Okay. So he delegated to people, and some of those people basically – you got to anticipate that. You have to set up a checks and balance system to keep the people that you hire, whether you're on the money or not, from the person that's sweeping the deck, I mean, swabbing the decks on the ship, you know, and dealing with your maintenance of the entire ship, to the person that's, uh, or the department that's in charge of compliance, to the people handling the money, you've got to have a checks and balance system. Starline, there's a lot of history there that I, I do not know about. But I'm, I'm just going by the little audio I just played, audio snippet. And it, it seems like Marcus Garvey did not anticipate that people that he thought he could trust can become human and embezzle money, number one. He didn't, he didn't anticipate that. And when you don't anticipate that, number two, he didn't set up a checks and balance system to keep these people in check. And you, you, you even got to do this with blood relatives. Number three, I mean, because, you know, when you, when you find out the money's embezzled, you know, it really doesn't help much to lose your trust in black people. No, no, or anybody. That's not the issue. The issue is, did you set up a check and balance system? It doesn't matter if you're related to them. It doesn't matter if your mom or your daddy or sister or brother. It doesn't matter if your husband or wife. It doesn't matter if everybody's black, white, cream. 
set up a checks and balance system to keep people honest. Mistake number two. Once again, I am I do not I didn't know Marcus Garvey. I don't know the inner workings of his Black Star line. I'm not I'm just throwing out some general information that I think I'm looking at history and look I'm trying to put it out there with look at history, look at their mistakes and then what can we do to improve? All right. Because it was two successful, I mean, three successful back to African trips already, way before Marcus Garvey was even thought of, you can see. Number three is particularly for the people who are handling the money. We're talking about the Black Star Line, and even as you listen to this podcast right now, no matter what kind of event you got, for the people handling money, are they insured? And are they bonded? So if they embezzle money, the insurance and bonding company will go after them. After them, you will not lose any money. Three basic mistakes. You've got to anticipate that stuff. <clears throat> now, we got people with their hands up on the phone. Let's go to another Marcus Garvey um, audio. Marcus Garvey had a tremendous impact on the world. African-American politician Adam Clayton Powell said, Marcus Garvey was one of the greatest mass leaders of all time. Namdi Azikwe, former president of Nigeria, said, Garvey was one of the most far-sighted persons of African descent to walk upon God's earth. Martin Luther King Jr. said, in the history of the U.S., Garvey was the first man on a mass scale to give millions of Negroes a sense of dignity and destiny and make the Negro feel that he was somebody. Kwame Nkrumah, former president of Ghana, said, the book that did more than any other to fire my enthusiasm was Philosophy and Opinions of Marcus Garvey. Jomo Kenyatta, former president of Kenya, said, In 1921, Kenyan nationalists, unable to read, would gather around a reader of Garvey's newspaper and listen to an article two or three times, then run various ways through the forest to repeat cheerfully what they had memorized to Africans hungry for some doctrine which lifted them from the servile consciousness in which Africa lived. Malcolm X said it was Marcus Garvey's philosophy of Pan-Africanism that initiated the entire freedom movement which brought about the independence of African nations. All the freedom movements in America were initiated by the work and teachings of Marcus Garvey. C.L.R. James said he started us off for me, Garvey was the beginning, the first man to make black people feel aware of themselves as an international force. The Jamaican-born poet Claude McKay said, Marcus Garvey's influence over Afro-America, Native Africans, and people of African descent everywhere was vast. But despite all his efforts, Garvey couldn't make the breakthrough in Jamaica. He went to England in 1935 and died there in 1940. His body was brought back to Jamaica in 1964 and reburied at National Heroes Park when he was made a national hero. The 
mission of Marcus Garvey was presented by the Friends of Liberty Hall and the Ministry of Education and Culture. Once again, today's podcast is titled Marcus Garvey Marching versus Seaport Shipping Literacy. Live stream number 619-768-2945. Now, right before that audio, I put out what I think were three Three mistakes that Marcus Garvey made. Three mistakes that anybody can make, including myself. All right. Um, they were, he didn't set up a checks and balance system because people that he thought he could trust, he put in very important positions handling money, and he found out he couldn't. So you got to have a checks and balance system. Number two, you need to have everybody that's handling the money insured and bonded. And I'm going to go a step further. They got to pay for their own insurance and own bonding. So if they in, if they embezzle any money, The insurance company and the bonding company will come after them. The enterprise doesn't lose any money, and they do some prison time. Two, I forgot the third mistake. Hold it. Checks and balance. Um, oh, you know what? Number three. I could have said something else before. I don't know how these people were trained. But here's the fourth mistake. In my opinion, that Marcus Garvey made, I'm just one person, just my opinion. You're glad to call in and express your opinion. I think the lethal mistake that Marcus Garvey made, not bashing, we're just looking at history and what we can do no matter what kind of enterprise we're in today so it can be safe and successful. I think the lethal mistake that he made, and this is why I call this this podcast Marcus Garvey Marching versus Seaport, uh, Seaport Shipping Literacy. Those daggone marches. He had up to at least probably 2 million followers at his, at his peak. And they would have marches and they would dress up in their, you know, their Garvey wear and all that. And even now in 2018, going into 2019, and even then when Marcus Garvey was doing these parades, and I, and whatever the organization was called, was doing these parades, I, I'm all on board with the intent. They had good intent, very good intent, do for self. Self-identification, self I'm on board with all of that a million percent. But no matter what color you are, and once again, this is my opinion, you can disagree. It's like take a white person that moves into an all-black neighborhood and majority of people that are living in that neighborhood are black Section 8. 
they go, that's, that's going to raise a red flag. That's going to bring attention to that one particular white person. Well, let's say you're a black person and you're a successful drug dealer and you go out and buy a Rolls Royce or a Bentley and then you're living in a Section 8 apartment in the hood. You're going to attract attention to yourself and attention that you don't want. So in my opinion, the marches were the thing that really brought him more heat than anything else and allowed this organization to be infiltrated. Once again, this is my opinion. Because at the exact same time that Marcus Garvey was doing what he was doing, shipping-wise, you had people from, I mean, Chinese-Americans, Japanese-Americans, Italian-Americans, German-Americans, they all had ships coming in and out of New York Harbor. Exact same time. But they didn't march. They didn't make a show out of it. And they didn't deify not one single individual of the group. Everything was, even to this day, was decentralized. Who, who's in charge of Chinatown? We don't know. Who's the king of selling egg food young? We don't know. Who's the king of spaghetti? We don't know. We do not. One thing that is not all black people, and I'm not, you know what? Don't deify anybody. The man was deified. Before we go to the phone lines on this, one of the, now let's go with some strategy. One of the things I think we can do to get back into the shipping business, we're talking about African-Americans, and somebody brought it up yesterday, it started school. I'm about to play. Now, you're going to have to play close attention to this next audio I'm playing. It's from a young Indian boy. He's about 12, 13 years old. And this 12 or 13-year-old is going to break down the shipping ports of India. He's going to educate you on, on, on the shipping ports of India. We need to open up schools that teach seaport shipping, matter of fact, just shipping, period, from the ground on up. Hi, this is Amar. Waterways are the cheapest means of transport. They are suitable for heavy and bulky goods. So, So seaports are the places where ships and boats load or unload cargo and people. Harbors and shipyards are also located near the seaports. Harbors are the places where ships take shelter from stormy weather. And shipyards are the places where ships are built and repaired. 
So now let us discuss about the major seaports of India. There are 13 major seaports and 200 non-major seaports that is intermediate and minor seaports in India. So 13 major and almost 200 non-major seaports. So 13, these 13 major seaports are run by central government whereas these 200 non-major seaports are run by state government's concerns, the state government's concern. So among, in the, now let us discuss only about the, those 13 major seaports. Among those 13 major seaports, um, 12 seaports are government seaports whereas NR port is a corporate seaport, that one. And among these 13 seaports, 6 are situated in the west coast and 7 are situated in the east coast in the east coast of India. Now let us discuss in detail. This map is not to scale and let us start with Gujarat state. Now okay, like I said, we need it. He's got a pretty thick accent. You have to play it. So I'm going to post that on uh, our Facebook page so you can uh, take your time and play that black and back. But basically, it's a 12 or 13-year-old Indian boy and he's landed out on, on a... Um, uh, a board on every major seaport in India. He teaches you some basics of about what I call seaport literacy. Now, there are black folk that are very successful and that are doing shipports, uh, seaports in various parts of the world. I'm going to take you over to the continent. Let's go to Lagos. At a time when Nigeria is looking outside oil to generate revenue to keep its economy running, attention is now shifting to the country's seaports to help build Nigeria from its economic challenges. Nigeria's seaports, especially the ones in Lagos, are among the busiest in the West African sub-region, but they are also notorious for being among the most congested, and this despite reforms carried out by governments in the past to make the ports more efficient. Turnaround time at Nigerian ports is among the slowest on the continent, giving room for lack of transparency and proper accountability which feed on the congestion. The government now says all of that must change. It is now planning to digitize and automate the country's ports operations through an initiative it calls a single window project. The national single window project will reduce contact with human beings. It means you can also do your transaction online. You can pay your custom charges, your MPA charges, your NIMASA charges and all the other charges online. The, another important thing we're doing is the government is working very hard to reduce the turnaround time for vessels calling at our ports. And to do that, it depends on a number of factors. Well, government is working towards a 48-hour turnaround time. In its bid to reduce turnaround time at its ports, the government in 2011 ejected the Standards Organization of Nigeria, SON, from the ports. The body is responsible for ensuring only quality goods are allowed entry into the country. With Nigeria now battling a serious influx of substandard products, the single window project is expected to bring back SON into port operations without any fuss over delays. Some today have upgraded these facilities electronically into the Nigerian Integrated Custom Information System, which tells us that today we can monitor what is coming up. But it is not every, every organization that is there. So if everybody 
keys into that project, then it now becomes the single window of Nigeria. And everybody all over the world can monitor what is coming in and what is going out. The country's cheapest council is also backing the initiative, saying it is long overdue and would transform Nigeria's ports and bring them in league with modern ports around the world. Uh, we have come to the fair conclusion that the redeployment of automation, you know, uh, electronic platforms um, at the port will not only reduce or eliminate corruption, it will also synchronize and fasten cargo clearance and it will uh, plug the leakages in revenue. At the beginning of the year, the Nigerian Ports Authority had projected a revenue of 201 billion naira for 2016. Even if it does not meet that revenue target, experts say by implementing the single window project, the country would have saved at least 1 trillion naira, which is estimated to be what Nigeria loses owing to inefficiencies at its ports. Dejibadmo, CCTV, Lagos, Nigeria. Okay, so Lagos, matter of fact, we're not going to do it today, but I was just thinking about something as he was speaking, they were speaking on that uh, audio. The number of blacks who got wealthy during the transatlantic uh, slave trade, because I'm sure some chief, or some chiefs rather, we're talking about plural here, they got wealthy in the participating of shipping of human cargo on those slave ships back over here from West Africa. But that's another podcast. Let's go to the another part of the uh, continent on the East Coast, Mombasa, Kenya seaports. Now, railways aren't the only key infrastructure asset being expanded in East Africa. Ports are getting a lot of attention, too. Now, with a notional value of about $11 billion, the port of Bagamoyo in northeastern Tanzania would have been the biggest in the region had construction started on the project. Now, President John Magufuli, however, stopped the project, and that leaves the ports in Mombasa and Lamu as the only ones in the region with ongoing expansion. Well, it's impossible to talk about the logistics architecture, at least in Kenya, without talking about the port side of the equation as well. And so far, we've been focusing mostly on the rail line. But let's step back and look at the ports in Mombasa and in Lamu. In September 2016, Kenya's government opened the first phase of a new $300 million container terminal for business. Now, the port handled well over 27 million tons of cargo last year. The new terminal can handle cargo ships at a much, much bigger capacity, about 6,000 TEUs. Now, a loan of about half a billion dollars from Japan is funding the construction of a new container terminal and, of course, the related roads and rail infrastructure. The second and third phases of that new container terminal at the Port of Mombasa should be operational between 2017 and 2020, respectively. Keep those dates in mind. The thing is, though, even with this expansion, the Port of Mombasa will run out of cargo handling capacity by 2022. So that's why an entirely new port is being built some 240 kilometers north in Lamu. Now, by value, this entire outfit is going to be one of the top 10 largest projects in East Africa. The total cost of building the port in Lamu alone is estimated at $5 billion. Now, it's currently designed. It will have 32 berths in Manda Bay. The Kenyan government, out of taxpayer funds, is building the first three at a cost of about $480 million. The first berth should be finished somewhere around 2018. The remaining two by 2020. See how those two dovetail now? Construction of the other 29, though, is where you come in because you can bid as private companies to actually build and run them. The port, of course, is the entry point for other 
large-scale infrastructure project. That includes, of course, a $3 billion oil refinery that should be able to process some 125,000 barrels of crude every day. A build-own-operate model is being considered for this particular facility. Once completed, though, and this is where the rail line comes in, there will be a line linking the Lamu port to the existing standard gauge rail line through the northern city of Isiolo, and that should give imports from East Africa access to two entry points for their import and export of their cargo, the port of Mombasa, which you probably know, and of course, the new one coming up in Lamu. Okay, so we have black folk on the continent and other places as well that are in in the seaport shipping into the business. We need more of them here in the United States. Before we go to the phone lines, I want to tie this podcast in today, which is titled Marcus Garvey Marching versus uh, Seaport Shipping Literacy. I want to tie it into The Wire, the TV show. Um, and well, let me play the audio and, and let me tie all this stuff in uh, together, if I can find the right, or I think it's the right one. I go. We got one out of two of them motherfuckers, you know? You mean you motherfuckers come strolling in here all walking tall and shit? You'll be out, man. I'm saying, man, we was blazing on them dudes, man. You know what I'm saying? Just got in the heat, man. We was blazing, though. It was late. All right, all right. Relax, man. I already heard. Go sit down. I'm not tweaking behind none of this. That's one less motherfucker that's breathing than was yesterday. You know what I'm saying? So we all good. But I'm surprised with you, though, man. Shit didn't get by you back when. Well, my man fought, man. I unloaded on the younger too soon, man. Gave him enough room to buck and run, man. I fucked that shit up myself, you know. Hold on. It's on me. I had that kid in my sights. Close enough to take off his Kango and half his dome with it. Couldn't squeeze the trigger. Couldn't do it, man. Why not? Wasn't in me, I guess. You know, whatever it is in you that lets you flow like you flow and do that thing, it ain't in me no more. So you done soldiering, but you ain't done. Could use you for what you got in your head. We're going to put you on a corner. You could be inside. Oh, man. I ain't making myself clear. The game ain't in me no more. None of it. But you ain't done shit else. You know what I'm saying? So what you going to do? But it can't be this. All right, then. We straight.
Now, Cuddy was in his 30s. He did a he, – well, he was an assassin. They called him soldiers in the, uh, in the wire. Soldiers are basically street assassins. And he had done a 12-year stretch in, um, in the Maryland prison system, what they call corrections. Did a 12-year stretch. And uh, like Avon Barksdale said, you ain't done shit else. What are you going to do? And as Cuddy said, I don't know, but it can't be. He, he just wanted out of the game. Nothing to do with it. Eventually, Cuddy uh, borrowed 50. He asked 10000 He asked. He went back to Avon and got 10 uh, He asked for 10000 Avon gave him a $15,000 loan or grant or whatever you call it. And he opened up a boxing gym in the neighborhood. Uh, it wasn't a commercial uh, uh, deal at all. You know, wasn't making money on it. And for his daily living, uh, Cuddy was cutting grass. He, he, he got into day labor, was cutting grass. Now, Avon Barksdale's headquarters, where that scene took place, is 1.1 miles from the Baltimore Harbor, where over $50 billion of revenue comes in yearly. Now, as somebody said yesterday, Cuddy wasn't really going to walk into the harbor and get a job. All right. But what's accessible, what's in the neighborhood where Avon Barksdale's headquarters was, was in the neighborhood where they did all that shooting and killing with what's in that same neighborhood of drug deals and all that is well is over a billion dollars of accessible disposable income from black folk. They can set up schools on shipping. It's a whole lot you can do with it. And I'm not talking about all of Baltimore. I'm just talking about in that neighborhood. I'm talking about disposable income that black folks have in that specific neighborhood. I got to take a short break. We'll be back in about three minutes. Yo, let's do this. Nightmare walking, psychopath talking, king of my jungle, just a gangster, stalking, living life like a firecracker, quick as my fuse, been dead as a death, back the colors I choose, red or blue, cause of blood, it just don't matter, something died for your life when my shots done scattered, cause the gangs of LA will never die, just multiply colors, You don't know me, fool. You disown me, cool. I don't need your assistance, social persistence. Any problem I got, I just put my fist in. My life is violent, but violent life. Peace is a dream, reality is a night. My colors, my honor, my colors, my all. With my colors upon me, one soldier can't fall. Tell me, what have you left me? What 
my young brother got shot. My homeboy got jacked, my mother's on crack. My sister can't work cause her arms show track. Madness, insanity, living profanity. Then some punk claiming they're understanding me. Give me a break, what world do you live in? Death is my set, guess my religion. Cuz, my pants are sagging, braided hair. Suckers there, but I don't care. My game ain't knowledge, my game fear. I've no remorse, so square beware. But my two missions is just revenge. You ain't my set, you ain't my friend. Wear the wrong color, your life could end. Homicide's my favorite binge color. Address what you had 
start off. You got the Airwaves full of information this morning. I'm going to go back and address uh, the uniform system that that you brought to notice and and getting attention. Were you talking about, about Marcus Garvey with his parades? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, when you uh, if you want attention, if you was if you were to drop off the Ku Klux Klan in a black community, how much attention do you think they'd get within five minutes? With the uniform. <laughs> how about thirty seconds? Oh, thirty seconds. It, it'll be yeah. People will be up and on. That's right. Uniforms came out to for identification of of slavery to some degree. If you read uniforms today, what do you see in a uniform faction in the White House? You see red ties. Well, what was that? In the White House, they're wearing business suits, business attire. Yeah, yeah, business suits. But the but the identification mark is a red tie. How many people okay. have actually noticed? How many people have noticed what the red tie represents? Now, if you go back to the Confederate flag and look at the tie and the and the suit, you can now tie the two of them together, and you know who they are without without saying saying anything. Now, let's go to the people that uh, ride the buggies up and down the street. You don't see them uh, portrayed up and down the street. Uh, the Mormons, you don't see the Mormons for protesting and for, for portraying up and down the street because they don't want to draw that attention. Their attention that they want you to know is their Mormons. And what do the Mormons do? They ride in buggies and horses. Oh, you're talking about the Amish. So, Amish, yeah. Yeah. So now that the identity mark, a lot of people have identity marks. So let's look at uh, the um, let's look at the uh, people that got talked about about the uh, things that happened with them raping children. That how, what kind of clothing do they wear? White. It's all over the news every day. And, uh, you know, the identity mark identifies a person's who they are, what they, what they support, and who they, and who they think they are. So when you put all of those identities together, then you can come up with understanding what number of people that you have living in the community. Now, let's go back to the identity mark. Our young black men has got an identity mark that I don't know where they got it from. Some people said they got it from prison. But they're wearing their pants down below the butt. How do you get rid of the identity marks when you don't have any control in the capitalistic system? The capitalistic system passed laws in 2000, I believe, not 2000, 1994, not 19, 2000, and not 1964, I believe it was 1964, 
when they passed the law in in the White House that a parent couldn't discipline their children without fear of going to jail. And look what came out of that. The poets set up a system, the transportation system, and the people that's in power set up a system is to say that we need some people on the street to sell the product that we are delivering. Now, what did they do? They took away all the jobs rather than black folks creating jobs. They were dependent on the jobs that had that they got from slavery. Therefore, <clears throat> they were able to create a workforce to distribute the product that was coming off the ships, the trucks, the trains, the planes, and everything. But since you brought these to the forefront, I was looking at some stuff on uh, on Kentucky where some little, two little rich boys went to college together, and they became some of the biggest drug lords flying dope in and out of the country ever been in America. Two of them, and one of them killed himself jumping out of a plane. His last uh, trip, he jumped out of a plane and killed himself with about 80 pounds of marijuana or something strapped to him because they had caught up with the people that were transporting dope. They were the biggest dope peddlers in America. Now, when we look at the transportation system, station system have gotten into some of the biggest drug lords' hands in the country, in the world. So what do we do with it? We have to understand and create a system to where we don't have to use it. What? How do you do that? You do the. You produce everything that people are consuming without having to go to jail. They don't have to go to jail. Now, we've got a person that's running for the governor here in Illinois want to legalize marijuana when he gets in office. We had a same kind of fight in the years, in the years back that with whiskey, they call it bootlegging. And how many people were bootlegged? People at the top. They even said old man Kennedy was a bootlegger. It's the way he got wealthy. Al Capone supposedly was a bootlegger. The reason he got wealthy. So what do poor people do without a vested interest in a capitalistic system? We have to break it down to where it goes back to the ghetto. When you said uh, a Rolls Royce, a Bentley, if you drive a Rolls Royce or a Bentley into the little town that I came from, you'd have everybody on the street stopping to see who you are. Not only would you have them, you would have the police department trying to drive up behind you to get your license plate to see where you're from. So your identity thing 
have been created is to where that everybody can pretty much tell, oh, he, he doesn't live in the hood. He doesn't live here because the houses are not built the same. Uh, if he builds a big house, let's go back to slavery. If he builds a big house, big white post on it, that belongs to the slave owner. You're touching what has happened in America for years, and nobody hardly has paid attention. Black folks, especially black folks, I speak about our conditions, and but black folks have been used for hundreds of years for the economic purpose of white folks getting rich and not having a vested interest in a political system that puts you back into slavery. You don't collectively pull it together. This will continue to happen for years to come. So I'll back out and let somebody else speak on the issues. Not only white folks that they got rich, but let's talk about the Asians and some Arabs right now. All right. For identification, because when you got, matter of fact, I just bought some uh, egg roll and some shrimp, uh, some fried rice yesterday. Um, that Asian family where I bought 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 the, the egg roll and, uh, and the fried rice from, they they dress casual. They don't have a uniform. Their uniform, if anything, is casual: shorts, t-shirts, that type of stuff. Number two, as I said, now at the time Marcus Garvey was doing this. They had chips. They were buying, you know, they were buying uh, rice by the container or whatever, whatever they needed by the container, and it would be shipped from, you know, different parts of Asia and Southeast Asia. Uh, then, as we all know, they came into the black neighborhood. You know what? I can imagine this. I'm, I'm gonna try to infiltrate. <laughs> I, just like over here, they have Amway meetings. They have Amway meetings and uh, what do you call it, Mary Kay meetings. You know, when somebody says, "Look, let 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 me show you the plan," and they start drawing circles. I am convinced that in the Asian community, they have that same type of meeting that goes on. Let me show you the plan, but the, and the part of the plan is this: let's set up. You you and your family can set up this franchise selling. Egg Foo Young and this made I'm convinced of it. Uh Arabs too. So like I say they um we can do the same thing because going back to like I say with that, that scene with that audio with Cuddy when he got out of the game. In that neighborhood, like I say it the money that would be difficult for him to get into initially would be the fifty billion plus that's at the arbor, because that that the walking distance, they can walk a mile, one point one miles. They can take a bike, get there within five minutes or so or less, or a car, you know, get there under two, two or three minutes, under under two minutes. All right. However. The income that they could get a hold of is over the $1 billion of disposable income that blacks had in that little small, those matter of blocks 
around within a one square mile radius of Avon Barksdale's hideout or headquarters. Black folk in Baltimore then as well as now is over a billion dollars of disposable income in a one square mile radius of that particular section of Baltimore City. But unless you're educated, unless you set up schools on this, to educate people, you're not going to get it. Now, that's another thing. Maybe some people out here know. I don't know if if Marcus Garvey had any classes on teaching people about stocks and securities. I don't know. If you know, let me know. Because if you if you if you're putting something out there uh, to the general public to your, you know, your audience for the, you know, his organization, and they don't know anything about securities, that can get you in trouble too. Let's go to, uh, matter of fact, I got to answer the door. Matter of fact, I'm going to play this clip on cut, cut, um, uh, another clip on Cuddy because I got to go answer the door, then we'll go back to our next caller. Rockefeller. Rockefeller's on the spot. Man, that's him right there in that G35, man. We're in a retro. That shit is tight. $430, it better be. Hell yeah. I'm going to get me one of those motherfuckers. <laughs> you must going to get that monthly bowls then. No mini me ass going to be swimming in that on sale. As usual, man, y'all fools are missing my point. That boy came up short on that money last week, and y'all see he out here grinding. So where that money at? You need to look beyond what he driving and wearing on his back. That boy got a girlfriend. You went with this little freak up at the high school. She wearing ice? She wearing an onion. That's about all I can remember. Hell yeah. <laughs> Yo, check out the girl. High school girl with platinum around her neck. Only one place it came from. Give my man this thing. Sig Sour. That ain't no locking, dog. We used to revolvers, man. 38 don't jam. Don't hold 15 neither. Game done changed. Game the same, just got more fits. He stole girlfriend. We need to talk for a minute. Yeah, sweet thing. We met before. Nah, baby, but that can happen. We ain't met. Excuse me. Hey, it's, it's just talk, baby. Get the fuck out the way. Look, girl. All we need for you to do is talk it's to us for five just minutes. Hey, look, hold on, girl. We want to do. Now we gonna talk. Okay, and those two audios, um, there's four people involved. Slim Charles Cuddy. Um, those guys in their thirties. Then you got two guys that could be eh, early twenties. One man had been a teenager. And they were in the first uh scene. Uh, audio, you have um, they were in a car and they were looking at one of their colleagues who was on the corner dealing drugs and he's wearing a, a throwback, basically an NBA jersey uh, which apparently costs a lot of money uh, so they see that he's he's getting customers, he's getting paid you know, he spent some money on himself and then they also know that he's got a girlfriend who's in high school 
So in the second audio, Cuddy and the two younger guys see this guy's girlfriend coming back from shopping. And she's got her shopping bag. She's got her hair done. She's got a nice dress on and whatever. So they come up and ask her, you know, look, we, they're trying to get more information on the dude, you know. Anyway, then Cuddy basically pimp slaps her on the street and said, now we're going to talk. What they got out of her is who she got the money from and how much she's been getting. And then, spoiler alert here, they beat the holy hell out of their, her boyfriend because he was skimming money off the top. That's all part of Barksdale's organization. Now, that neighborhood where all this happens, where the dude gets a beat down, where the girl goes shopping, where they pimp slapped her, there's, there's at least a billion dollars within a one-square-mile radius of where all that went down. We're talk, we ain't talking about Avon Barksdale's hood. That's another billion. But right for where all that stuff went down is a billion. And it's like that in, in the same neighborhoods in Chicago, D.C., Miami, you name it, it's there. The people that are getting the most take out of that, if you want to put an identity on people, would be pastor, because black pastors get a billion dollars on Sunday. Uh, barbershops, black barbershops get a good cut. And black hair salons get a good cut. Asians got a they got a lockdown on the nail business right now. But those are the three primary people. Now they you know, it's split up you have other black entrepreneurs, but that's that's where the three are getting it right now. Let's go to uh our next caller at area code four ten. Your mic is open. Good morning, brother LA. How you doing? Fine, fine, good to hear you. Uh I wanna go back to the start of your uh podcast this morning um up until about two years ago i was part of the uh, unia-acl of marcus garvey uh-huh and and you know uh fragments of his organization is still in existence uh, you know that Dean. oh i'm here i've gone to it's been a um, while but i used to go to some of those meetings too but i haven't gone in years though oh, yeah. I, I know they still exist yeah 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 in fact uh when i got into the uh Washington, D.C., uh, area in 99 and 2000. That's when I went to D.C. and found out that it was still in existence. And uh, that's when I joined it. But I transferred over to the Baltimore chapter um, okay. when I moved into Baltimore. And uh, what you, I want to start off by saying that you're absolutely correct in, in the downfall of the um, Black Star Line. You have to make people accountable. And anything you right. do, when you, we we as African Americans throw organization around very loosely, and I say that because we when we organize, we think you can just jump up and get a bunch of people together, do a march and get a bunch of people together, and everything to take care of itself. But in all the other organizations that I belong to outside of the Black community, it is very strictly structured on mm-hmm. what they expect from you, what happens if you don't do what they expect from you. And there's a consequence when you go outside of the bylaws and the standards of conduct and the ethic codes. And right. uh, that's something that we don't do when we're in our organizations. 
And uh, Marcus Garvey was very good at recruiting. But when it came to put in management positions, I think that's where he lacked the talent to bring the right people in. Also, I would like to say that along with the Black Star Line, the reason, one of the reasons why it failed, failed was because, another reason why it failed really, was because when the Black Star Line was organized, there was a White Star Line too. That's why he created the Black Star Line. And the White Star Line was very well organized and very well structured and very well financed, but it went belly up too. And those were the okay. Rockefellers and all the rich guys that put their stuff together, but it was during the economic downturn that all of these shipping lines fell. And the third reason why Marcus Garvey's Black Star Line fell, in my reading, Brother L.A., you can go in and put all the transportation and logistic organizations in place. But if you don't – and distribution places in, pay, in place. But if you don't create a network of retail outlets to get it to the consumer, you're doing all of that for naught. And that's something that Marcus Garvey didn't do. Now, he you know, had a I'm, vast I'm network. You brought that up. I'm so glad you brought that up. Because that's what the Chinese and Arabs have done. They've got a network of retail outlets. Exactly. Exactly. All the way down to the flea market level and the street level, out of their cars and everything else. I noticed that in Baltimore. And the thing is, when they get these uh, shipping containers in of merchandise, when they're offloaded at the docks, You've been to K Street where they have the warehouses. And I've been to mm-hmm. K Street and I've been to Pedersen Avenue in Baltimore. They have it so that they can come in there and get what they need and they break it down to every part of the city and the county. And that's right. something that we don't do. And Marcus Garvey didn't do that. He had he had the network in place. But all of those uh, branches that he had out in the United States, he failed to go in and put up storefronts where when those ships come in, they could have distributed their product out to the black consumer. And at that time, had he had that in place, blacks, he had enough black consumers and black supporters and sympathizers that that black star line would have worked. But he didn't have that network in place. He had it in in Harlem, but he didn't spread it out over the nation. And that was another reason why he failed because the people he had in charge didn't have the foresight or the knowledge to go in and put those networks in place. And then another reason why he failed is something that we fail to realize as black folk. And I'm going to kind of shift away from you a little bit, and you can come back with a rebuttal. He didn't underestimate the United States government coming in to break up what he has started. I don't think we realize the tremendous threat that the white folks saw with him organizing that many black folk. And they had to do something about it. In fact, that's how Herbert Hoover gained his reputation because he was the one that brought Marcus Garvey down on a trumped-up charge. But when they saw he organized all of those people, 
They play chess, we play checkers. We were happy-go-lucky. We were just glad to be organized, but they saw that as a threat, especially at that time. And the other, and look, it wouldn't matter whether he had uniform uh, parades or not. The one uniform that we have, Brother L.A., is our skin color. We don't have to put on any type of uniform. We don't have to say a word, but our skin color is monitored. Now you can disagree with that or you don't have you don't have to agree with it. But the thing is, we're very closely watched. If there's anybody watched any closer than we are, I want you to tell me about it. Not even the Russian government is 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 monitored as closely as we are. And the other thing, Brother Ellie, is this. We just don't understand how much potential power and potential wealth that we have. And every organization that I belong to that was based on, uh, that was created by black, um, black, black people, we come in there without a clue on what we have and, and a goal to go in and empower us in the neighborhoods that we're in. And I'm gonna get, I always throw out statistics. And I'm going to give you a statistic, Brother L.A., and uh, Washington, Arlington, Alexandria, D.C., Virginia, Maryland, West Virginia metro area, black folks accumulate about eight billion, about nine billion dollars a year. Now that's not including the central city, which is Washington, D.C., which generates okay. the most of it, and Prince George's County, and in the Baltimore, Columbia, Townsend, Maryland metropolitan area. Black folks create about $20 billion a year with Baltimore by itself creating $8 billion of that. And look, Baltimore have the distinction as a city to be an independent city. It doesn't belong to a county. It's independent like a county. You're and right. the deal is, while we out there gang banging and pimping and, and, and rapping and all of this foolishness, we don't have any leaders in that Baltimore, Washington, D.C. area looking at these numbers and say, you know what? There's a lot of potential here that we can exploit for our people and ourselves to go in and do what we need to do to get out of this foolishness that we're in. Now, we put a lot of stress on gang-related stuff because the movies puts it out there as propaganda. The government puts it out there as propaganda. And the thing is, we don't have anything in place to counteract propaganda and, and focus us in the right direction. Once we do that, game over. And I keep saying that. And look, it wouldn't take that long to go in and get this thing set up. But we can talk about containers all we want to. We can talk about shipping from Africa to here and back to Africa. And we can talk about going in and setting up those distribution warehouses. But if we don't go out in the local neighborhoods and set up these retail outlets to do those five things that I repeatedly uh, bring up, then we aren't going to make it. And everybody knows that. And I'm going to tell you this, because you always start off with uh, Claude Anderson. Claude Anderson is a good example that he went to Detroit and he was going to set up an economic network. And black folk, Arabs, White folk, Jews, and everybody else ran them clean out of town because they knew that if he set that up, 
that Detroit would have been a black mecca. And you can't minimize the government's threat that the government, what the government see us as a threat. We don't have to put on uniforms. Nature gave us the uniform as far as this, this society is concerned. So we can't minimize that. And I'll, let, I'll get off and let you continue with your program. I, I agree with you, but let, let me ask you this, okay, because you're right. You do have to factor in or anticipate government uh, coming at you in a negative way. It's just like, well, going back with the drug scenario, a lot of people that, a lot of people, regardless of color, in this country get prosecuted from, they're they're low-hanging fruit. Drug dealers, low-hanging fruit. Black men in urban areas, low-hanging fruit. I mean, we've all seen on TV and the news where, you know, the police will come into a neighborhood and tell everybody who's on walking on the street, line up against, up against the wall. Because they figure somebody in that neighborhood is going to be dirty. All right. Um, the, uh, what was the question I was going to ask you? Um, uh, okay, hold it. You, hold it. you mentioned, uh, oh. Mm. I'll be here if you want to go on to the next next question yeah, while you're uh, thinking about I mean, it. What was it? Um, you're right. We do have to factor in. Um, we do have to factor in um, the race thing. But now, what's been happening lately, though? Because even my mother told me years ago, bouncing off what you said, uh, you take something like nine eleven or this thing that happened in Jacksonville, Florida on Sunday, or the, the Columbine thing with those two kids, they, or, or, or Timothy McVeigh. The government's so busy watching us, they're not watching their own. And that's why you got the Columbines, the 9-11s, and the Jacksonville thing, and the Orlando nightclub killings, shootings or whatever, because they're so busy watching us. Even Martin Luther King's widow. Uh, J. Edgar who he, he was surveilling her, a widow, with four kids raped. They were little then. Yes, they were. So we we do have, we do have to uh, factor that in. Oh, but I, I probably don't. But I, I think we, we need to open up these schools. I mean, some different type of school to start educating people on all of this, including the surveillance part. What can we do to keep a low profile, set up networks, and all that? Um, let me go to that next call. Because, oh, man. I, I well, should, look, I before, right you that, yeah, before, uh-huh. before you do that, go ahead. Before you do that, Brother L.A., were you in the military? No, not in the military. Do you know how they, they stopped the leakage? Of, well, Donald Trump hasn't been very successful at it. But do you know how they stopped the leakage of very important information? No. You compartmentalize the information. There's certain people, there's only certain people that get certain information. Now, the general staff, they have the overall picture on what they want to do. That's the generals. Then what they do is they break that down to each unit and what each unit function is. And they give okay. them their assignment. Say, like for an example, I was in I was in logistics and supply. 
what they do is they give us our orders on what they order, how much to order, and they'd also give us information on what how much equipment we needed to do it. Now they wouldn't tell us why they were doing it. They just tell us, look, we need to go in and procure such and such and such. That's your distribution. Okay. okay. The next guy, they go in. They go in on. Uh, well, in fact, they they separate supply from logistics. And I don't want to take up your time, but then they go over to the logistics parts with the trucking and everything and say, look, we need you to go in and put on alert so many trucks, so many airplanes. And the thing is, we need you to have so many ships in place. Now, they wouldn't tell us that they're going to embed somewhere or they're going to do what they need to do. On the infantry side, they're going to get the command of the infantry to say, look, we need to start doing some exercises, training exercises. And they okay. go in and train. Now, each one of those each one of those divisions don't know what the other one is doing it for. And then on the other side, because I was in uh, Delaware before the Iraq War started, they have what's uh-huh. called MILCON, which is the military construction part. They had the MILCON to go in and create a whole new, uh, what do you call those places where it brings in bodies and things like that, morgue. They had yeah. them to go and construct a morgue, and they increased it. But nobody knew why they were increasing it. They just said it's a new construction project because the old one is out of date. Well, all of these components was doing what they needed to do, but nobody had the overall strategy and the overall plan on what they were going to do. Well, you can go into any black organization, and we know what everything is going to be, the goal and what we're going to do and everything else. So when a person walks into a black organization, and look, it can be a new person. He can walk in or she can walk in, and he knows the overall plan and who's going to do what because we don't compartmentalize our information. And that's why most of our organizations fail. Uh, the other thing is, and I'm going to stop at this, drugs was planted in our neighborhood. There's an Ehrlichman uh, YouTube cast said that Nixon, the government, to go ahead and put heroin in our neighborhoods and marijuana in the white neighborhood to string us out. Because during that time, you know, we were very, we were solid as far as who the enemy was and what was going on. but the thing is, it was right out of the civil rights era when we were pretty much organized. And Ken and uh, Martin Luther King had sort of era of his ways and wanted to concentrate on economics. All you have to do is listen to uh, his last speech in Memphis to see that he wanted to shift to economics. But the influx of drugs and gentrification is one of the chief weapons that they use to try and break up those numbers that I just gave you. $20 billion in one small area of black consumers, if they turn that around and put it to where they want to control politics and control that area, they got the money to do it. So gentrification is to go and scatter that money out so that they don't have a, a, a combined effect or a concentrated effect. And if you think that the wire, the way it's portrayed, wasn't a plan, then I got the Mojave does a drawbridge, I want to say and I'll get off and let you go on. Okay, well, that's a whole nother podcast on putting drugs in in neighborhoods. Well, all right, let's talk about a drug that's in every neighborhood probably. Alcohol. So um 
you know, we're going to say that for another podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let, let, let's go to the next call here. For, uh, 314, Eric, your mic is Man, listen to you guys. You have people scared of stuff outside. <laughs> <laughs> Without taking that hog leg with me. But uh, the government wouldn't have paid no attention to the market's garbage. If it hadn't been for the mulattoes and I'm calling what they are, that was against him. They called him a little monkey. The boys, Booker T. Washington, he was a mulatto. Frederick Douglass won. And were they not the ones who controlled? Slavery in South Carolina, New Orleans, especially the females. So, you have these groups, and you still have them today, and people who are supposed to have a patent on quote-unquote black folks. The boys didn't like the organization organizing and the ability that Garvey had in drawing people. I'm not going to say he had two million. We can't say he had two million. Then we say one of the reasons he failed because he couldn't keep good books. Where did that data come from? Holly Collie House before him had uh, over four hundred thousand in her organization, the ex slave mutual relief and pensions organization where he was trying to get she was trying to get uh, pensions for ex-slaves so look at Paul Kofi who's another mulatto uh, of Ghanaian father and white mother look at the shipping line that he had back in the early 1800s coming out of the late 1700s. So I think that the the fact that you had the, those organ, those uh, individuals that turned the FBI, went to them and uh, sicked them on Garvey was one of Garvey's downfalls. And he had a good idea to establish trade between a colony in, well, in Africa with the United States. Let's put a pin in what you said, okay? Uh, Somebody's got the line open. I'm hearing three or four voices. Oh, wait, hold on. Let me meet somebody. I think I need it. No, you can keep it on. I'll shut up. No, no, uh, Neely Fuller touches on this that one of the things that African Americans need to do, we need to stop snitching on each other. So, uh, what you're saying makes Well, yeah, being jealous. My question to you is this How can we anticipate that? And then set up a lot of defense to prevent that. Because that does Well, I tell you one thing you can do. It it happened to uh, the black Socrates, Hubert Herbert Harrison. They tried to get him fired from his post office job in in his street corner uh, oratorial skills that he had. You see it today. Uh, Nation of Islam going against these uh, Christian groups trying to organized. You got 
the, the new Black Panther Party out trying to organize. Uh, when you in a like I told you the panel discussion I was in with uh, some of these groups about two weeks ago, and I made mention about uh, there needs to be school choice to produce schools like the Aviation Academy High School there in Florida that teaches uh, its ninth through twelfth grade students to become pilots. Oh no, we can't have that because these private schools, privatization of schools, you tear you pulling away the best and all this. So see they want access to your kids because that is the way they can carry themselves out into the future. Same thing with these homophobic groups. They want access to the kids. Keep your kids away from them. Have your own educational systems or be able to put your child in the educational system that you feel is best, what you should be doing that anyway. How in the heck are you going to get your children prepared? You know, those kids down there at the Aviation Academy is going to be prepared for Amazon. They're going to be prepared for the 250,000 shortages in commercial pilots. So that's one way I would think. Yeah. But no. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. right. Well, the Catholic Church has done that. You know, because they, they set up schools, they set up a lot of schools globally. Yeah, and uh, coming out of Reconstruction, you had white organizations that built over 6,000 schools in the country for for uh, blacks. Brother well, you know can you hear me? Today on, on YouTube, with, with, for instance, you got, you got, like, Dr. Umar Johnson, there's a number of black people that are, you know, bad-mouthing him. And his school idea, you got a, he's got a lot of support. He's also got a lot of criticism. Then you also have people like uh, Tariq Nasheed and Tommy. I mean, it was uh, Glad TV. I mean, you're right. We, we got too many of us fight bad mouthing each other. Yeah, and they want to so take possession of black folk. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, we can hear you. Uh, Brother L.A., uh, you know, what I laid out, that's why a lot of people, a lot of ethnic and racial groups can do what they need to do. You said, how can you stop the leakage of information and the snitching, and how can you stop these different factions from warring against one another in the black community? Well, the thing is, uh, the Honorable Pleasant, I mean, Pleasant Steppens always gives you the right answer. When people have a vested interest in something and they see it's going to provide them two things, it's going to provide them with the things they need and they're going to benefit from providing those needs. They will protect it. But you have to compartmentalize your information. Once you set the mission, you compartmentalize that information and give people information on a need-to-know basis. If I have a guy out there driving a truck, he doesn't know what the overall mission should be. He should just do. He or she should just do their job. If I have right. somebody in charge of procurement, number one, what you do is you in corporations they have subsidiaries and they have holding companies that 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 does the whole thing. 
subsidiaries only handle the debt that they're responsible for. And this other thing about, look, you don't need everybody out there. Everybody's not going to agree with what you are trying to do. So you leave those people alone. You don't try to get everybody. I think you said it one time before, if you just get that core group that wants to do what they need to do in your neighborhood, 90% of the people are not going to go along with it anyway. So you Correct. deal with that because the threat is not only external, but it's internal. Brother Pianca was right. right. And the thing is, he said they're mulattoes, but there was some there was some ducks again. People of my color, chocolate brown, chocolate brown too, that was against Marcus Garvey. But the key thing is, those people were influenced by external forces. W. B. Du Bois. Every time black folks did, went out for this self-help thing, he was the chief critic. And look, don't get me wrong, I, I respect the guy, but just look at his track record. And who was he working for? The NAACP, whose mission was to litigate. They weren't trying yeah. to empower our people economically. So you know the thing is, is let's, let's, well, let me finish this, Bianchi. Forget about this mulatto, this color thing. Damn that. You know what? The thing is, we don't even want to get into that part of it because, look, there were some dark black people that was against Marcus Garvey, too. And, and look, there was against Booker T. Washington. Booker T. Washington was Marcus Garvey's chief influence. That's why he came to America anyway. And there was against Booker T. Washington. Call him a coon and call him a sellout because he wanted to empower black folks economically. Anytime somebody stand up, to want to empower us economically, you're going to find those bluebirds. And, you know, that's my comment. Yeah, you know, Marcus Garvey's plan wouldn't have took off in Jamaica. They threw rocks at it. I think a lot of his influence came from Paul Kofi, which was running the ship line back in the early 1800s. He liked the school. Yeah, he liked the school that Booker T. Washington formed, and that's what he wanted to find more information out on on that. Uh, You may mention about the White Star Line, which started in the the, uh, early 1800s, too. That line lasted for nearly 100 years and got tore down during the Depression. And also Asians... Asians uh, have came into that market very strong and pretty much control a whole lot of it today. And White Star Line is, is your Carnival Cruise Lines that today also, if you do some tracing on them. But anyway, L.A., uh, what more can be said? Okay. And I contend if people want to do something, to go and do it. Everybody else does. If people, if a group see voids and see how to put those those intricacies together in order to gain from it, they're gonna do it. Uh, if you don't have convenience stores in your in the hood, somebody's going to come in and create them, and uh, that's exactly what you're seeing going on. But uh, I'm gonna sit back and listen. Well, I, I agree with. Uh... What you gotta say, particularly Connie, on the you gotta come come per, uh, co- I can't pronounce it carp, carp uh, separate information where everybody doesn't know what everybody else is doing. Um, 
that makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, Pleasant, any any comment? No, I think I'll just sit on the side because I've heard so good, so much good information today, and I could add so much to it. But we'd be here the rest of the day because everything I've heard is positive, and we know that the bottom line is if you're gonna, if you're gonna, if you if you take a judge and he sends somebody to prison, and uh, you take people that were the, the frame people, and if you make that that law. As you, as you were stating a few moments ago, that's a whole other broadcast. But if you create a law to where a person shoots a person without without cause or shoot a person in the back, then that person would go to jail for the rest of his life. Then you wouldn't have all these killings. So there's so much that we can add to this conversation to stop people from being infiltrators and putting us in a position as to where we have fear. All of that plays a part of this conversation that we're talking to, talking about today. And I, I, I appreciate everybody's comment that's on here because it plays a part in everything that we're doing. And that's the reason why. When we do it collectively, and that's another reason why we're having, a, uh, having the uh, – another reason why we're having the uh, summit in uh, October, we have one of these every year, so that everybody don't have all the information. They just have enough information to take back to start to empower black folks. So that's I'll, I'll I'll shut up and sit down, and I'd love to hear you guys tomorrow. So that's it. For me. And you know another thing too, LA. Yeah. Uh, the Ethiopians yeah. have some shipping lines. I gave you a contact to one African American shipping line down there in uh, New Orleans. I don't know the, the extent. Yeah, we we got to get him on. Yeah. Yeah, bring him in and uh, ask him some questions. Then, of course, there's Samson down there in the Riviera Beach. He has a lot of information from his experiences. Right. And, right. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I got to get those guys on. Yeah, but, well, for Pleasant, something you said more than once. Because, like, you just take the information today. We had to uh, take that information, write our own books, do our own documentaries, and create our own libraries with this information, uh, including having schools to teach people. So this is stuff that we've got to do um, on, uh, you know, our own. So on that note, that's it for today. We'll we'll see you guys tomorrow. Thank you.